Hello and welcome back to the Edge of the Box podcast, a podcast by whoscored.com. I'm your host, Dan Bardell, joined by Ben from Who Scored and Jonathan Wilson to preview all the weekend's Premier League action. And we're going to start, though, with the Champions League team of the week. Ben, always look forward to this. Who's been starring in the Champions League this week? Who's the algorithm picked out? So in goal, it is Diogo Costa of FC Porto, which is not a surprise given he saved a penalty in their win at Club Bruges. Uh, there's actually been eight penalties saved in the Champions League group stages, and he's now saved three of those. So that must is that a record? Well. I mean, you probably don't know the answer to that, but that feels like quite high. I'll say, according to my stats, it's a record, but I obviously don't know for sure. Uh, at right back, it's Gonzalo Montiel. He scored his first goal of the season for Sevilla in their three-nil win over Copenhagen. It's an all Serie A centre-back partnership with Leo Ustergaard and Alessandro Bastoni. And then Federico De Marco rounds off the defence. In midfield, it's two wingers from Bayern. Serge Gnabry became the third player to register a hat-trick of assists in a Champions League match this season in Bayern's 3-0 win at Barcelona. Uh, that came after Di Maria and Jota achieved the feat. And on the other flank is Sadio Mane, who scored in that win. Sandro Tonali featured in midfield. He made seven key passes against Dinamo Zagreb, registering one assist. And... That has only been bettered once in Champions League match this season, where Peter Zielinski made eight key passes against Rangers. Uh, Octavio rounds off the midfield after he got two assists in Porto's win at Club Bruges, which is fairly impressive considering the Belgian side had conceded a goal in the group stages prior to Wednesday's defeat. Up front, no surprise, Lionel Messi and Kylian Mbappe both got two goals and two assists against Maccabi Haifa as PSG smashed them 7-2. Uh, they became the third and fourth players to register a perfect 10 who scored rating in Champions League match this season after Robert Lewandowski and Usman Dembele achieved that against Victoria Pilsen. Interesting. Jonathan Messi struggled last season for PSG, it felt. This season, no such struggles. Yeah, and he's in great form for Argentina as well. So I, I, I sort of um, I pretty much written him off. I mean, obviously, yeah, still a great player, but but in terms of getting anywhere near the level he, he was at, say, five years ago. But I actually think it might be on for his sort of World Cup win with Argentina. Um, I saw extended highlights of that game he played against Honduras last month, and he was exceptional in that game. And that forward line with, with Papa Gomez and Latino Martinez uh, looks really, really... Impressive. And the other player who impressed me in that game, I think he I think he came for bench in that game, was Enzo Fernandez, uh, who I thought was really good again for Benfica against Juve this week. And these Champions League team of the week is always quite difficult because, uh, yeah, I only watch four games and then it's not like a Premier League week where you see sort of extended highlights. You tend to see the goals of the other games. Yeah. Uh, but I thought Benfica were, were really... I mean, I know they only won 4-3 in the end, but... It was slightly freakish. They were 4-1 up and absolutely cruising against Juve. And Jean Mario, Rafa Silva, um, uh, what's he called? The centre-back, uh, Antonio Silva. See a Silva as well? The 18-year-old who scored the opening goal. Mm. Uh, yeah, Antonio Silva. Um, I find Portuguese names really difficult because there's so many Silvers. But yeah, both Rafa Silva and Antonio Silva were was brilliant in that game. So Benfica, I think, definitely uh, could be an awkward opponent in the last 16. Yeah, Ben, talking to Portuguese football, Spurs last night. Strange game against Sporting. Spurs, terrible in the first half. Really, really poor. In the second half, came alive and really had, had a good go. Thought they'd won the game right at the death, but didn't due to a, a dubious offside, although the rules are the rules, to, to be fair. Mm. But Portuguese football, you know, the Portuguese teams have been good in the Champions League so far this season. Yeah, I think a lot of that comes down to the experience in the competition as well. I mean, Benfica, Porto and Sporting are usually there or thereabouts in this stage of the competition. Sporting did progress to the last 16 last season, um, so I wouldn't be surprised to see them do so together. They have a fairly you know, good group for them to progress from with Tottenham, Marseille and Eintracht, who are fairly inexperienced at this stage. Um, Benfica, though, as Jonathan rightly pointed out, were exceptional in that first half uh, against Juventus and then took their foot off, almost blew it at the end, but held out for the win. Um, Porto as well, they were, they started off the group stages with hardly in the best form. I mean, they lost their opening two, so you kind of thought maybe this is going to be another drop out of the competition at this stage, but three wins on the bounce, including that 4-0 four, four win over Club Bruges, who had already qualified, admittedly, last night. Um, it looks pretty good for Portuguese football, and 
obviously European teams take note of that because they then go and raid their best players for millions and millions of pounds. Yeah, I believe Portugal's overtaken France in the was it called? I don't know, I don't know how to say that word. The coefficient co- co- this that's the one. What is it, Jonathan? Coefficient. I believe Portugal is now a higher coefficient than France. That could be complete fake news being spread by me, but I'm, I'm sure I read that the other day. But are you, and the other thing with that, I mean, they're not going to be close to passing them on the coefficient anytime soon, but the performance of Spanish teams this season has been dreadful. I mean, yeah, three Barcelona. of them are out. Yeah. Barcelona, Atletico and, and Sevilla. I mean, Sevilla, I know, have been in terrible form in, in La Liga and maybe you wouldn't expect them to go through. Mm. But Barcelona and Atletico both to be out at this stage and just Real Madrid through. Yeah, I think it, it suggests... I sort of... I feel like I've been tiptoeing around the idea that La Liga might be in a lot of trouble for four or five years and keep being made to look stupid by, well, normally by Real Madrid going on and winning the thing. Be and nice, that might happen again this year. But you look at Barcelona's finances as well. Um, I mean, they're talking now about a 200-odd million euro loss for this year. And that was if they were budgeting for getting to the quarterfinal. And so they're, they're, they're going to be 20-odd million short just in prize money, plus the TV money, plus the gate revenues. Um, and, and the, you know, they really need to start making money soon because they've they've sold off quarter of the next 25 years of La Liga broadcast rights. So this, this US company who's bought that, Sixth Street, they owe them 41 million euros this year. So they're just paying that money out while losing money hand over fist. So uh, Barcelona are in massive, massive trouble. Ridiculous football club, Barcelona. Let's move away from the wildness of the Champions League and Barcelona and look at the steady Premier League. It's Manchester United v West Ham, which is, of course, the Paulins derby, Jonathan. Casemiro for Manchester United. I mean, I say turning into a big player like it's a surprise, but we all know he was was a big player. But he, he making an impact in ways I didn't really expect him to for Manchester United. You know, he, he got an assist the other week, he, he's popping up with late goals now as well. He's making an impact in that midfield. Yeah, he is. I mean, I, I'd sort of, um, and again, this is maybe what happens when you, you sort of consume football in highlights rather than watching live games. And obviously, you know, the amount of uh, Real Madrid um, games I watched the full 90 minutes of was was, was pretty limited. Uh, I hadn't realised how sort of uh, involved he is. I sort of thought he was a player who essentially sat there and his skill was was reading the game and, and being in the right place. Sorry. But he, I think I think he's he's made um, three point one tackles per game as well this season, which puts him ninth uh, in the uh, Premier League list. Uh, plus, he's you know he's he's really getting forward to make tackles. And the big question about him, and the, the thing that that you know I'd heard from Real Madrid, there were concerns fitness wise over the last sort of year and a bit. I thought the fact that it took him six weeks before he really started to play for United, maybe that was something that, that they were discovering that he wasn't quite at the, the physical level they were hoping. Um but you know he's 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 pushing much higher up the pitch than I thought he would. I thought he was just a screen for the the two centre backs. But he's not. He's a he's a much more combative midfielder than that. And and um you know I thought that game against Chelsea uh, maybe it wasn't the greatest spectacle, but it was one of those really fascinating games where you could see the tactical changes both coaches were making. You see how that had an impact. And that midfield ended up being very, very congested. And the two players who really stood out were Casemiro and Ruben Loftus-Cheek. Um, Loftus-Cheek, obviously, less eye-catching way because he didn't score the last-minute winner. But I think he, he still had something like an 81% pass completion rate in that game, which was way higher than, say, Jorginho, who you think of as being this sort of metronomic passer. Um, so yeah, you've seen the difference Casemiro's made to United, and it's it's I think it's been hugely positive for them in, in in ways that I hadn't sort of foreseen. I think in a dream world, Manchester United fans would have maybe liked someone like Declan Rice who they come up against this weekend. You've got some some stats to compare the two players, Casemiro and Declan Rice, so far this season. Yeah, I mean, as Jonathan was saying about uh, Casemiro's tackles, he if you do that as per ninety, because four of his appearances have been from the bench. He actually goes up to top if you put two players to have made two, registered 250 minutes of action Premier League this season. So, I mean, he is still winning that ball um, fairly frequently and shielding that defence as you expect to from as, as you would expect from him. But he is, as Jonathan said, getting so high up the pitch. I mean, he's making 62-1 passes per 90, which is a decent return for. Admittedly, you want a player in that position to be making those passes. You know. You win possession, you recycle possession effectively. But to be doing so so high up the pitch is positive for United because the issue was that 
they didn't have a player in midfield that would kind of win the ball and get it forward. Whereas he is now not just winning the ball deep and getting it forward. He's winning the ball higher at the pitch. And that just sets United on the front foot quite quickly, which is a huge plus for them. I guess, Jonathan, maybe you, you weren't wrong with what you thought about him at Real Madrid because you're playing a different system, playing at the base of a midfield with two, two eights in front of him. I guess your job's different to how they're, how they're kind of playing now because... I kind of look at Manchester United, they have two midfielders sitting sitting deeper in uh, Casemiro and Eriksen, and then Fernandez is playing as, as more of a number 10. I guess it's just the fact that Ten Hag's style of football maybe is different, that we're now seeing different things from Casemiro. Yeah, I mean, whether that's what Ten Hag wants to do or not, I think it's another question. But but certainly the way it's panned out, yeah, he he is playing with a... I mean, I suppose both Modric and Kroos were were capable of of dropping in and sitting alongside him. But yeah, they, 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 they played in advance of him. Um I mean, I'm I'm I was really surprised on Saturday that Ericsson started. I, I I thought, given the, the the opposition and given it was away, they played the more the more obviously defensive figure of Fred alongside Casemiro. Mm, particularly given that had worked so well against Spurs. Given that that's you know they played together for Brazil. I think they played 15 or 16 times together for Brazil, and Brazil have you know on a run of what one defeat in three years, I think. Um, so, um, to see Ericsson then, I, I think the, the doubt about Ericsson in that role has been, is he aggressive enough? Does he, does he win enough tackles? Does he put himself about a bit, about enough? Um, and yet, you know, in that first sort of half hour or so, were were significantly the better side. It, it, it definitely worked. And it was only after, uh, Potter had made his change, uh, Chelsea gone to the diamond. So they, they then having been overmanned in midfield, they had the extra man. It was only then that, that, the Ten Hag brought Fred on, he went to a diamond. And I guess that's the advantage of having um for four high class players. You you can you can pick three of them um and and, and choose your balance as you want. You you pick Ericsson if you want to be slightly more progressive, pick Fred if you want to be slightly more aggressive, or play both of them with with Bruno Fernandes, as it turned out, play on the left of the diamond with, with Ericsson as number ten. If the opposition are playing for narrow in midfield and you need to match them. That United finally have a squad where those are, yeah, you know, you've got a series of, of of good players, and you can choose the right ones for the situation, rather than sort of patching people together and and, and it's sort of being a bit of a bodge job, make do and mend. Yeah, a bit of tactical flexibility for Manchester United. Now they did bring McTominay on as well, and he impacted the game, albeit not in an entirely positive way. Ben, one thing that might impact Manchester United is that Varane, who is in tears, is probably going to be out for around three weeks. Lindelof and Martinez doesn't feel the most robust centre-half pairing in the world, especially probably against a physical side like West Ham, one of the more physical sides in the league. Yeah, I feel like it, if West Ham are going to get the better of them on Sunday, it will be to target uh, that centre-back partnership, be it through Antonio or Skamak, or even use both up against them. I was them because, going to say, could they use both? I mean, admittedly, yeah, Martinez is very good in the air, but I mean, Skamak is about seven foot tall, whereas Martinez is sort of two foot shorter than him. It just doesn't strike confidence um, as it would the same as it, as, as it did with Varane there alongside Martinez. But then that's the risk that has come with Varane in that he his injury issues kind of cleared up towards the end of his time at Real Madrid. But at United, they just seem to have fled up again. Um, and it's a shame for United because that was a, the makings of a really good centre-back partnership. I mean, you had the sort of aggressiveness of Martinez and that composure um, of Varane. But you, you do have the composure to an extent with Lindelof but it's not the same quality of uh, Varane and then with Maguire injured as well all that good work that's happened since Varane came into the side alongside Martinez could well come undone um, over the next couple of weeks fortunately the World Cup is you know three game weeks away so it's not a huge period of time that he's out for and he won't miss sort of you know an extended period of time for United which is a plus you'd have to say for Ten Hag but again if you know, if West Ham are going to come away with a result against United on Sunday, it'd be by Antonio or Skamaka or both targeting that centre-back partnership. Yeah, I think Maguire from- is back in training, isn't he? So, I, I, I mean, I, I presume this weekend's too soon for him to be, to be back, but whether he then does play the, the other two league games, which from an England point of view, obviously would be something to get two games under his belt before, before Qatar. Where does Varane write in terms of importance to Manchester United? If you had to pick a top three most important Manchester United players, would Varane be in that top three, Jonathan? Yeah, I think he probably would be. 
That's actually a really difficult question because pretty oh, much yeah. every United player you think of, you think, oh, he's quite good. Oh, but he, he does this. He, but there's, there's sort of question marks about all of them. Um, Varane's only but, question mark really is his fitness. Though, is the fitness he's a Rolls yeah. Royce of a defender. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I still think, and this is being very picky, I still think teams who press really well can unsettle him. And I, I think back to, uh, when was it? Uh, three seasons ago when he played for Real Madrid at the Etihad and City absolutely destroyed him. So, I, I, I mean, I guess all... does it, Yeah, no no player is so good that they're not rattled by really good pressing. So maybe that's slightly unfair, but he sort of stood out that night as being somebody I thought was really uh, good on the ball, really unflappable, being flapped. Um, and and, and so, so I, I, I think you can get him like that. But, but yeah, he... he he is a such a composed presence and so physically dominant as well. Um, I think it's it's he's a very useful player to have alongside Martinez. I think they work very well as a pair. He's a bit of a settler as well. I think the back line always feels more settled when he's in there rather than a Maguire or rather than a Lindelof Varane. He's obviously got that experience of what, as well of playing in a hell of a lot of big games over the years. Now, West Ham are back to playing Thursday, Sunday. They've picked up seven points from five games post-Europa Conference League, and three of those are against Gerrard's Aston Villa, which is no achievement, and three were at home against Fulham, who haven't been particularly good travellers in London derbies this season. Ben, what have you made of West Ham so far this season? I just expected them to probably be around the best of the rest again with, with Newcastle at the start of the season. Yeah, same. And they did have that poor start. Um, it took them a while to get that first goal. But they, they do have that squad now that's capable of playing that Thursday, Sunday. I mean, they spent big on Skamaka, Paqueta, Corne as well. So they do have strength in depth in sort of key areas. The one sort of concern I'd have for them is whether they have the relevant sort of strength in the holding department with Rice and Suchek. I mean, if one of those gets injured or has a huge dip in form, that's, you know, a key area of the pitch where they are lacking strength. But, I mean, it's something for Moyes to address, maybe. They've already progressed from their Europa, Europa Conference League group. They've picked up four points, uh, four wins from their four games. So they can kind of take their foot off the gas in that in that sense, in that they are already going to be in the next round of the competition. So they can focus on the Premier League and then use that strength to good effect. Yeah, Jonathan, I agree. Yeah, so, what, what was that stat? Seven points after the five, after some from five games after Conference League games. Yes, mm. that was. The they've only got they've only got fourteen points in total, so they're taking seven points from seven games, not after Conference League games. Mm. So they're actually better after Europe. It's a fair, it's a, it's a fair shout. That's a fair yeah, I mean, shout. I, I, I accept that the kind of the level of game that they've played. Yeah, I mean, Gerard's Villa. Yeah, maybe does put Nasser. That was one of the worst football matches there's ever been in history. And Villa, Villa have had a few of them this season. Yeah, but anyway, but my point being, I'm kind of, I'm not fully convinced about about the relevance of that stat, and and also, yeah, this game United have also come off the back of a Conference League game, so, um, and then you know, squad wise, you're right, West Ham are way way better this season than they were last. I think that was a real issue for them for final so a couple of months of the season last year. Yeah, but the midfield's a valid point, isn't it? Because yes, they've got Flynn Downs. I can't test to have seen too much of him other than other than Monday night this season so far. But obviously we're in for Anana who ended up going to Everton. So obviously did want to strengthen that central midfield area with another big presence in that midfield. There is a lot of load on Suchek and Ross Jonathan. Yeah, there is. I mean, I guess their, their budget is not limitless. Um, I think the obvious place where they needed to improve was, was centre-forward. Uh, Skamaka and Corne coming in have given them depth there. Uh, I guess after that, yeah, the, the next place was was the back of midfield. Uh, I, I mean, I wonder whether they're sort of thinking Rice is likely to leave next summer. So rather than bringing in sort of um, uh, a backup player in that position, you, you wait and you sort of keep your fingers crossed that they can keep both of them fit and then you, you go a bit bigger uh, and get a, a more a more long-term, higher-caliber higher replacement next summer. What should West Ham be aiming for this season, Jonathan? Should they be aiming for that, that seventh place? Maybe although Newcastle are having a, having a good season so far. Try and get a trophy, maybe the Conference League? Yeah, I mean, I mean the, the Conference League, I, I guess, for all they had that that, that great experience of the Europe last season, it does feel like a step down from the, from the Europa League. But on the other hand, those, those European nights, the, the, the big ones towards the end of the season, 
that those were were really special memories. I, I think people who yeah. were there will will talk about that those games for for twenty, thirty, forty years. They 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 you know, as a fan, those are the nights you want, right? The um and often they you know, they sort of defy logic with certain games just just take on a significance. Um so yeah when you come that close to to winning the um the Europa League, I mean getting to the semifinals, um I guess you think you look at the conference league and you think, well, if we're that close in Europa League, this is a slightly lower quality yeah, maybe we have got a very good chance in this. Um, but it's, it's very difficult, I think, to to, to say that to to, to 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 name the place where they should be finishing in the Premier League because you have the big six, you have Newcastle, but then you also have, and I think this is one of the features of the Premier League over the last four or five years, that middle class has really expanded. I mean, Villa, I know they've been dreadful this season, um, but they've spent a lot of money and you've you've got teams a lot of money in, to be dreadful in in that in that you know in those mid ranks you are spending money who uh, I mean Leicester have, you know had had you know those those seasons where they looked like they 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 might get in the you know, back to back seasons where they they really could easily have got into the Champions League and didn't so you you think well even West Ham I mean Leicester had a bad season a bad start to the season. But for West Ham to finish above them at the start of the season, you just said, "Well, that that's that's not easy." So you got Newcastle, you got Villa, you got Leicester. Then you got teams like Brighton, who okay, they've been affected by Potter going, but they've been building as well. So just finishing the top half is really difficult. Don't be in a relegation battle is the first thing, and West Ham maybe are moving away from that now. And then try and get in some kind of European competition for next season is the next thing. And then I guess you you wait till March and see what cup competitions you're still in. Or yeah, I don't know. Whenever the quarterfinals of the league cup is are this season, and if you're in the quarterfinal of either of those, you think, yeah, okay, let's have a real crack at this. Yeah, and what's the score going to be at the weekend, Jonathan? Manchester United v West Ham. You're the prediction king at the moment. What's your prediction? One nil to Manchester United. One nil to Manchester United, Ben. Two uh, one to Man United. 2-1 to Manchester United from me as well. Old Trafford becoming a bit of a happier place to play for Manchester United than it has been over recent years. Next up, it's Liverpool against Leeds in the Dominic Matteo derby. And Jonathan, Liverpool, just when you think they're coming back to some kind of semblance of form, they go and chuck it away to Nottingham Forest. Yeah, I mean, their away form this season is terrible. Um, we're taking two points and five away games this season. The home form has been very good. Uh, four wins and two draws. I mean, I say very good. They look at that Brighton game and think that that wasn't that good. Um, so, yeah, that, that's the big difference. That, yeah, home, they're, they're, they're the side they always were. And they're unbeaten at home in, what, 18 months or something? But away from home, is, you know, those, those problems they've got have really been been exposed. Um, but, yeah, they they got those three wins in a row. You thought, okay, they've settled down. Admittedly, the game against West Ham, they were pretty fortunate that uh, you know, West Ham missed the penalty as that late clearance off the line. Um, but you sort of you gloss over that because it's in that pattern of wins. Uh, but then you're know, really poor at Forest. I, you know, I know they had chances, but they never had the sort of energy and grip on the game you, you, you'd expected them to have. And it was one of those one nils where you could sort of see it coming a mile off. You could sort of, oh yeah, Liverpool aren't quite on it today, and Forest maybe have begun to sort themselves out at the back. It's injuries a viable excuse, Jonathan. They've got a hell of a lot of injuries at, at the moment, but they, they still should have enough to be beating Forest away, you would think. Even Villa and Dejera got a draw away at Forest. I mean, individual games, strange things happen. They they have had a lot of injuries. I mean, yeah, they're without what Diaz, Matip, Cater, uh, Arthur Mello, Jota, Henderson's now uh, got an injury in the Champions League. So that's that's seven big players out at a time when you're trying to. To, to restructure the side where where the, you know the, the patterns aren't quite as familiar as they were as you know as, as people like Mane are, uh, are, are phased out so the injuries do make a difference I guess the, the 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 more significant question is are the injuries bad luck or are they the result of the intensity of of the way Liverpool play you know, is that what just just what happens when you play in that way for a certain period of time, particularly when the the, the calendar is as compressed as at the minute that you do start getting soft tissue injuries, and that's something that, yeah, you know, I'm not qualified to answer. 
uh, and you seem to hear contradictory things from different people who, who should be experts. But it's it does seem a feature of Liverpool when things are going badly that they have a lot of injuries. Yeah, Ben, you're not a medical man either, but Liverpool are following the same pattern as Klopp's Dortmund in his final season there. He was at Dortmund for seven full seasons, and this is his seventh full season with Liverpool. Or is it mine for seven seasons as well? He loves a seven seasoner. We should probably have a a decent bet that he's not going to be there next season, Jurgen Klopp. (laughs) But that heavy metal footballer, Jonathan says, he he does play a part and it is following a very similar pattern to, to that Dortmund side. And this season does look like it could be a struggle. Yeah, I mean, they're not performing as badly as Dortmund perhaps did that season. I mean, at the winter pause uh, in 2014-15, they were 17th on 15 points and did recover well to finish uh, seventh. seventh. Yeah. So they do, I think that winter pause came at a very good time. It could have the same impact with the World Cup, depending on who of Liverpool actually goes there, because they do have, as Jonathan pointed out, a lot of injuries to sort of key players. Um, and it's the same for Dortmund that season. They had a lot of injuries to, I think, the, their midfield partnership. Um, I can't remember who it is. I know Nuri Sahin was there, and he would have been uh, a key player for Dortmund, but he was injured a fair bit. They just It's, it's this style of football that Klopp wants. Um, and immediately it worked well because, you know, all the, the, the players are fresh. They want to perform for the manager who wants to implement this heavy metal football, as he put it. But over time, it's just going to start wearing those muscles like tighter and tighter. And it's going to get lots of muscle injuries, which is seemingly the case again with Liverpool this season. So, I mean, I said not a medical man myself, but it, it, all that intensity, all that hard pressing, that high running, it's going to impact the players on the hamstrings, on the groins, on the calves. Um, and it just seems that they're following a similar pattern. I dare say Klopp is absolutely buzzing for the World Cup to come along so he can sort of get some rest from the players that aren't going to the World Cup to recover for the second half of the season. I've never heard that phrase before, winter pause. Sounds like, like Father Christmas's cat. Winter pause. Here in Germany, they have a sort of month-long break. Yeah, I've so never heard it called winter pause. It's, it's winter pause <laughs> in German. Winter pause. Mm. Nice. Yeah. I, I like that. <laughs> I can't stop thinking about Sandra having a cat called winter pause now. Really, put, really derailed <laughs> me from the from, from the podcast. <laughs> um, Jonathan, what are Liverpool's ambitions now this season? Is it simply just trying to get in, get into the top four anyway? Anyway, they can or trying to get in the Champions League anyway. They can, but potentially winning it. Yeah, if if the Winterpauser uh, oh, does do them good, then 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 there's no reason why they can't put a run together in 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 the Champions League. I mean, they're still fundamentally a pretty good side, um, and you know, if it draws kind to them, it might only have to beat two decent teams. That, you know, that's the way it can work. Uh, but they're, they're, what are they? They're uh, I mean, twelve points off the top, so that's that's probably gone. I mean, ten points behind City is probably too much. Uh, they're what five points off fourth, but with a game in hand. So I mean, that's yeah, we've we've played what a quarter of the season, no, a third of the season. So that's eminently make upable. Um, so yeah, trying tr- trying to get in the top four is is the big thing. And if they can have a you know a, a good run in the in the Champions League and maybe. Maybe get to the semis or the final. Well, yeah, that that's that that's a bonus. But but getting back in the Champions League for next season, I mean, that's the, I guess that's the big problem they've got. And this is this is what Klopp I think was alluding to when he talked about um, some clubs don't have ceilings. Yeah, Liverpool have to generate the the money they spend. So if they are going through this big overhaul of the squad, and you look at how many players in that squad are, are over thirty. Um, Yes, Salah is, um, Firmino is, Henderson is. Um, you know, it's 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 a squad that's starting to show its age. Then you do need to, to to bring in new players, but to fund that, you have to be in the Champions League to get the, um, yeah, hundred million or so euros that that guarantees. And Leeds, really, really in a torrid run of form, failed to win now in eight, and that's the longest streak of its kind in, in the Premier League. A manager change feels almost inevitable, Ben. That that 3-0 win against Chelsea at Ellen Road back at the start of the season feels a very long time ago now. Yeah, it's a very long time ago. Um, it's just a bit... I mean, they did lose sort of key players. They lost Calvin Phillips. Obviously, that was a um, big loss for them, but they, sort, they brought in Rocker and Adams. So you felt like those two could maybe cover that loss, and they add depth to that midfield. They brought in Christensen to improve it right back, uh, Sinistera in, in attack, and um, Brendan Aronson. And they are good signings, but 
it's just leaders' defensive issues. You thought Jesse Marshall maybe corrected them, then they go and concede three at home to Fulham at the weekend. Um, they only conceded three but at home before that game. So it's just it's hard to point out what the exact issue is. I mean, Leeds faithful may know more about it than, than I do. They probably will. Jonathan and Desi are the same. Um, the injury to Rodrigo seemed to have impacted them probably greater than many thought um, possible. I mean, he, he ended pre-season really strongly and then I think dislocated a shoulder against Everton and that just seemed to rob them of that attack, uh, attacking verb that they had and had the, they, he had developed that good partnership with Jack Harrison. So that impacted them in the final third and it just seemed to kind of snowball from there. Now they're sat in the relegation zone and have failed to win an eight. So work for Marsh to do. Um, whether he has given the chance to do it, it remains to be seen. Is it looking like a, a relegation battle for, for Leeds, Jonathan? They, they don't look good at the moment. So I actually thought the same as Ben. I thought the signings were, were pretty decent. It felt like they were following a little bit of a of a Red Bull model with having a former Red Bull manager and then Red Bull players coming in as, as well who've pl- played within that, that branch. But it's not going well at all. And the, the Leeds fans now are getting restless with Marsh. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's... it's um... It's one of those classic things you get with a, a squad that's fine. You know, it's not a brilliant squad, but it's fine. You, you think it's not relegation yeah. fodder, I wouldn't say. Uh, well, occasionally you get a newly promoted side. He's or oh, a side that's had one season you know, where they've you know scrapped for their lives and stayed up. Where you think, yeah, that is a relegation side. But it, it's it's definitely a sort of lower mid table side at best, squad at best, uh, and anything above that, I think, you know, is is is. Unexpected is a massive bonus. I think the problem with a team like that is that it doesn't take much to go wrong for the whole thing to go wrong. So that combination of the Rodrigo injury, Bamford being in this ridiculous run of form where he just can't score. And every time he does score, it's ruled out, and then he misses penalties, and you can see his confidence has started to wane. So we've had a handful of games this season where they've played pretty well, haven't taken their chances, they've done something stupid at the back and have conceded, and now there's this sort of just mood of of despondency, of decline about the place. I, th- I think they're still sort of harking back to the the best days of Bielsa, and whoever followed him would would I think have, have found it quite difficult. Um, but they were a mess under Bielsa. I mean, you could blame injuries, but they were they were on the they, way they, down. They, they become Bielsa. a mess. They become a mess by the end. Yeah, that, that, that's that's certainly true. But your yeah, fans aren't thinking of the last month. They're thinking of yeah the. The, you know, the the season the season when they went up the season before they went up the season after they went up, um, and and when you've had a connection with a manager as strong as that, I think it's really hard for the next next bloke to come in, uh, and I think a lot of the more personal attacks on Marsh are, are probably born out of that. That you know his main fault is being not Bielsa, but obviously everybody in the world is not Bielsa is also not Bielsa. Um, but that game against Fulham was just, a, I think, an example of a team that's stopped believing in itself and it's just misplacing simple passes and making simple mistakes. And that's a really hard thing to get out of. Yeah. Let's have some predictions then for Liverpool against Leeds. This used to be a really good game back in the day when, when Leeds was spending money and buying all sorts of players. Liverpool v Leeds was, was always a classic Premier League encounter. I suppose I'll go first to, to make it fair. I'll go Liverpool 3, Leeds 1. Ben? I was going to do the same. Liverpool three leads one. Jonathan. Two, two nil. Two nil to Liverpool. Clean sheet for Liverpool at Anfield does make some sense. I think they have kept a few there recently. We move on now to the just a minute section. And Jonathan, your first game is Leicester, who revitalised themselves against Wolves last week against Manchester City, who are obviously gunning for the <coughs> league, as you'd expect. The City, in some ways, uh, are in a massive wobble at the minute. They've only won one of the last four. Now, admittedly, that, that one does include two Champions League games they've drawn nil-nil when they didn't really have to do anything other than draw, um, where they've played weakened sides. Uh, but those two games, plus the defeat to Liverpool, means there's three away games in a row when they when they haven't scored. Uh, Holland's a doubt for this game with fatigue and flu and a foot injury. Cancelo's also a slight doubt because of the, the illness issue. Phillips and Walker are both out. Um, and Leicester, as you say, are, are, are suddenly starting to, to win games and get points. So 10 points in the last five games. Significantly, I think they've kept four clean sheets in that run. They're now out of the bottom three. Um, and they they have 
beaten City four times under Guardiola. Now, admittedly, they've lost 10 times, but those, those four wins uh, sort of stick in the mind. There's the famous 5-2. Last season, they lost 6-3 at the Etihad in the second half of that game. They caused some real problems. Uh, it was 1-0 at the King Power. I think City should win it again, but I'm going to go just the 2-0. That's exactly what I was going to say. 2-0 to Manchester City. <laughs> ben? Uh, 2-1 Man City. Good for fantasy football. I know you don't like fantasy football, Jonathan, but good for fantasy football if Haaland was out for a weekend to open it up a, a little bit to, to other people to be captains because he's, he's ruining the game for me, ha- Harlan being. Everyone has him as captain. Just no fun at all at the moment. Go I mean, on, Jonathan, t- tell me more about your, your You don't find it team. fun anyway. I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm fascinated. Go on. I'm, I'm, uh... I could call you out for some of the things you were talking about before we before we came on the, on the, on the, on the podcast. Some of the computer games you were talking about. <laughs> I, I like Crusader Kings 3. I'm very excited by the release of Victoria 3. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I, I I like the big sweeping strategy games. I don't talk about them incessantly. No, no. Some people like fantasy football. Some people like Victoria Three. We've we've all got we've all got different hobbies, Jonathan. And, and fantasy football is relevant to the realm of the podcast that we're in. I use the word realm because I thought you, <laughs> I thought you'd like it as well. <laughs> ben Bournemouth against Tottenham for you. So after a bright start to life under Gary Neil, Bournemouth have lost back to back games to drop to fourteenth, and they're now just four points above the relegation zone. Uh, home form will be key for the Cherries this season. Even so, they have won only two of six games of Vitality and have one of the worst home records in the division. That being said, Bournemouth do have a solid record against Spurs on home turf. They picked up a positive result in three of their last four meetings with Tottenham on the South Coast, collecting five points in that run, though the sole defeat was a heavy 4-1 loss here back in 2018. O'Neill will be forced into at least two changes from that side that lost at West Ham on Monday night, with both Dominic Solanke and Neto forced off either side of half-time in East London while Lloyd, Kelly and David Brooks are absent. Spurs have lost back-to-back league matches, dropping points at Manchester United and then failing, falling to a first-home defeat since April in a 2-1 loss to Newcastle last weekend. The North London side were denied a victory at the death on Wednesday to extend their winless run in August. <laughs> <laughs> They've collected eight points on their travels this term, yet have lost two of the last three away matches. Uh, Richarlison and Dejan Kulisevsky remain out for Tottenham, but Christian Romero and Pierre Hoiberg were back in midweek, which is a boost for them because they missed the loss to Newcastle. Conte may revert back to a 3-5-2 setup here, though may be tempted to continue with a 3-4-3 once more, either starting Lucas Moura in attack alongside Son and Kane or pushing Perisic into a more advanced role. However, Brian Hill was bright off the bench in midweek and must surely now come into Conte's reckoning. And I think that'll finish Bournemouth 1, Tottenham 2. 1-0 uh, to Tottenham. I was going to say as well, I've gone 1-0 for Tottenham <laughs> as well. Next up for you, Jonathan, is Newcastle Aston Villa. But before you get into the just a minute section, just want to get your opinion on the Unai Emre appointment for Aston Villa Football Club. I think it's very good. Um, I, I mean, there's a couple of caveats there. So you know, he's never really done well outside of Spain. Uh, so his time at PSG, which is obviously a very, very difficult club to manage, didn't go well. His time at Arsenal probably wasn't as as poor as people made it out to be at the time. But replacing Wenger was always going to be difficult. Time at Spartak Moscow, all kinds of things went wrong there. But but again, difficult circumstances. But that that is a potential issue that, that all the successes come come in Spain. Um, uh, I, th- I think Villa is the right size of club for him. I think you know, you look at where he's had success in Spain. It's been those teams just outside the elite, hovering on the on the fringes of the elite. Um, I, I think we we probably probably uh, underappreciated him a bit when he was at Arsenal. So uh, I'm looking forward to, to, to see him have, a, have another go in a, an environment that might be a bit more might be a bit more suited to him. What actually pleases me with it, one of the things is that Newcastle actually wanted him as their number one appointment. And Newcastle have made a lot of really good decisions over the last 12 months, a lot of measured decisions. Now, I know Eddie Howe's gone in there and done very, very well for Newcastle. And he's, the, he's the ideal and perfect manager for them. But the fact that they identified Emery as someone who they wanted to take them forward for their first steps of the journey that encourages me a little bit if that makes sense yeah i mean the the, the other caveat and this isn't an emery issue it's just i i don't understand what villa see themselves as being as a club when they apparently spoke to tuchel uh spoke to brendan rogers um and spoke to pochettino those are three very very different managers to emery now you may say they despite all this spending all this money, they haven't had a plan up till now. They've made a right mess of it and they're starting again and they want a figurehead to be the person to lead that process. Um, so if this is sort of a, an, an almost an admission of failure over the last three or four years of spending, 
well, well, fair enough. But that that would concern me. The the hopping about from basically who are famous managers who we might be able to get, famous managers who are either out of work or potentially soon to be out of work. That that doesn't convince me. There's a there's an overall plan at the club, but yeah, I, I, I that that's not to detract from Emery's abilities as a as a coach. Yeah, I can't see Christian Perslow admitting that they've made mistakes anytime soon. You've just spoken for probably over a minute, but you can now do your just a minute section on Newcastle against Aston Villa, Jonathan. Well, Newcastle, as you say, doing very, very well. They're up to fourth now. They've won four of the last five, only letting three goals in, in that run. Uh, they had their, their their statement win at Tottenham last week, although they do actually beat Tottenham quite a lot away. That's been the nature of that fixture, that the away team has, has won a lot over the last sort of five or six years. Um, but still, I think given... How close they come to beating beating City, how well they played at Liverpool, only to be denied by a very, very late goal. Um uh well, to, to not get a point in that game. Um I, I think winning away at a big six team uh was hugely helpful and you know is now with the gap to Spurs as well, increasing the pressure a bit on Spurs. Uh Ger- uh Gerard gone from Villa, obviously in the the yeah, the immediate response to losing him to score three goals in fifteen minutes. So that that four nil win against Brentford. I'm not sure how much you can read into that. Whether it was just the euphoria of, uh, of the, the sort of the albatross have been weighing them down, disappearing. Um, be interesting to see how how Emery does. But they are only three points of relegation zone. First thing to do is to get points and get get away from that. Uh, I think probably Newcastle will just have enough. So I'm going to say one nil to them. One nil to Newcastle. I'm going to go for one one. Ben, two nil to Newcastle. I'm just saying there's absolutely no bias in my prediction whatsoever. Then next up for you is Brentford against Wolves. Yeah, a run of one win in six has seen Brentford drop to the bottom half of the Premier League table. Three of their four league defeats this season have come in the period after the postponed games following the Queen's death, so the drop in momentum looks to have proven a big hindrance for the Bees. Thomas Frank is again without long-term absentees, Pontus Janssen, Aaron Hickey and Thomas Strakosha. There is a slim chance that Christian Norgard may return to first-team duties here. Frank may also consider a change in shape, having only seen a 4-0 hammering at the hands of Aston Villa last time out, as they conceded three times in the opening 15 minutes. That said, as Brentford look to get back on track, they face a hospitable opponent in Wolves. Steve Davis, like Frank, watched on helplessly as his Wolves side were battered 4-0 at Molyneux by Leicester to leave his side mired in the relegation zone. The only reason they are not bottom is due to Nottingham Forest's inferior goal difference, but these are worrying times for Wolves, you feel. They scored fewer goals than any other team in the top four tiers of English football, with five. And remain without attacking quartet Sasha Kaladzic, Raul Jimenez, Chiquinho, and Pedro Neto. And they have the worst away record in the division, picking up one point from six games. That said, they are unbeaten in their last three trips to Brentford, winning twice, including in this fixture last season. But Brentford will be confident maintaining their impressive form at the Brentford Community Stadium. So I'm going for Brentford to win 2 0. Same 2 0 to Brentford. Jonathan? 1 uh, 1. 1 1. Interesting, interesting shout. Brighton v Chelsea for you, Jonathan. Graham Potter's returned to Brighton and you, you wonder what sort of reception he'll get. I think there's quite a lot of frustration from Brighton fans that, that he did leave, that he did uh, follow the economic imperative. Um, but his, his start at Chelsea has been very impressive. Uh, nine games, six wins, three draws. Uh, they're now fifth in the league, only two points behind Spurs. Got a game in hand on, on Newcastle in fourth. Uh, got a lot of injuries going to this game. Though Kante out... Fafano out, Reese James out, uh, big doubt over Kulabali as well. Uh, Brighton have only taken two points from five games uh, since Deserbi was appointed. Uh, they've been a little bit unlucky in that time. The defeat to City last week was the first of those five games which they haven't had the better XG, and that includes an away trip to Anfield and the game against Tottenham. Um, they've got a load of injuries as well, but Lallana. Uh, should be back or might be back. Uh, both these games were 1-1 last season and I think it's going to be 1-1 again. I'm going to go for 3-1 to Chelsea. Ben? Mm. Uh, 1-0 to Chelsea. 1-0 to Chelsea. Jonathan, uh, Brighton, obviously deserve haven't won a game yet in, in the Premier League. Are they going to find themselves having a, a relegation threat in season, Brighton, do you think? I don't think they should because I think they actually played fine in, in those five yeah, games. Yeah, they're a good I mean, watch. It's a, it's a tough... Tough one of fixtures, um, and and uh, it was giving it to Forest, wasn't it? But they battered Forest, just couldn't score. Uh, so I wouldn't. I mean, there's always a danger, particularly when a new manager comes in as a bad start, that confidence just disappears and 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 they they sort of get sucked down. But I, I think they've played well enough 
in those games to sort of suggest that yeah, the, the, the results will start to come. The problem's the problem they've always had, though. They just don't take don't take chances. Um and and that was a problem under Potter, and they had these long runs without winning under Potter as well. But it is problematic when it is a new manager in his his first games that uh, yeah he doesn't have credit in the bank, and fans maybe are starting to doubt him. But I think I think if you if you've watched those, I mean the City game, you know what happens against City is almost irrelevant. The previous four games, there was enough there to think this, this should be okay, and it's a horrible start. You know, in your first six games to get. Liverpool and City away, Tottenham and Chelsea. I mean, that's as, as tough a run as you'll ever get. Yeah, not the best of starts for Deserby there, but a bit of a harsh start. Palace v Saints is up for you to preview now, Ben. Yeah, Crystal Palace's winners run at Goodison Park extended to eight games last weekend as they fell to a 3-0 loss at Everton. The Eagles are sat 13th on 13 points ahead of this weekend's games, but while they are yet to win a game on the road, picking up three points from the five matches on their travels, Palace have been solid at Selhurst Park. They have won three of their last five in South London with their sole loss in that run coming against Chelsea at the beginning of October and that was following a late Conor Gallagher goal. In a boost for Patrick Vieira, Cheikh Ducore returns from a ban. The summer signing having missed the loss at Everton and his absence was certainly felt. The former Lonsman should return to the midfield on home turf with Jordan Ayew or Luka Milivojevic dropping out. Jack Button, James MacArthur, Chris Richards and Nathaniel Klein remain sidelined due to injury. Just as the pressure start to build on Ralph Hasenhutl. Southampton are now unbeaten three, which includes a solid one all draw with league leaders Arsenal on Saturday. A 1-0 win at rivals Bournemouth last week ended a three-game losing streak of the road and they have a decent record at Selhurst Park, winning three and drawing one of their last five trips to the capital. Ainsley make the Nars miss the draw with Saints, uh, miss the draw with Arsenal due as he was unable to face his parent club, while Romeo Lavia will hope to make his first appearance since the end of August this weekend. Fellow summer arrival, Armel Belakot, Balakotchap is sidelined until next month, while Tino Livermento is a long-term absentee for the South Coast side. I think that'll be one all draw at Selhurst Park. Oh, I keep, keep going for I was going to predict, Ben. I was going to go for 1-1 <laughs> one, one as well. I'll stay with it. Jonathan? I can't hear you, Jonathan. 1-0 to Palace. One nil to pass. I really enjoyed the footballer's apology. Bob <laughs> <laughs> that, that was very, very in, in, enjoyable. Um, Jonathan, you've got Arsenal Forest to finish on. League leaders, Arsenal. Yeah, I think there maybe are some fears about Arsenal that they looked a little bit leggy in that draw to in the second half. Having, having played well in the first half, they, they sort of let it slip in the second. But they had won 13 of their 14 games before that. So... Yeah, they're really not in a position where they should be stressing about anything at the moment. Um, Smith Rose and Chenko, and then he's still all out for them. Uh, Forrest, I think, starting to just look like they're, they're, they're moving to a bit of form. Maybe um, uh, as Cooper gets used to this squad and, and, and you know, starts to fit together all these new parts, they've got taken five points in the last four games, three clean sheets in a row. Uh, the, the worry is scoring goals. They've only got two goals in the last five, but maybe maybe that is the way you have to do it and get get the defence sorted first. Uh, they're one of three teams now on nine points at the bottom of the table. They've got five players out. How significant that is, I don't think anybody, including Steve Cooper, really knows. Uh, Forrest did beat Arsenal in the Cup last January and, and also in 2018. Their last win in the league away to Arsenal was as long ago as March 1989. I don't think they're going to improve that this time. I'm going to say 2-0. I'm going to go 3 0 to Arsenal, Ben. 3 uh, 1 to Arsenal. 3 1 to Arsenal. You have Forrest down to score. Ben, the final game in just a minute for you is Fulham against Everton. Following a three game winless run, back to back wins over Villa and Leeds has lifted the mood in the Fulham camp as they come to what they will see as a very winnable fixture. Marcus Silva faces off against his former employees on home turf, and so does with, Dan- with Dan James available. He missed the victory at Ellen Road last weekend and is unable to face his parent club. Or Silva hopes to have Kenny Tete available selection for selection. However, some arrivals, Manuel Solomon and Leyman Kazawa sit out Saturday's welcome of Everton. Fulham have won three of their six home league matches at Graham Cottage this season. They don't have the best record against the Toffees. The West London outfit have won only one of their last five home league meetings with Everton. Frank Lampard's side ended a three-game losing run in style on Saturday afternoon as they eased to a 3-0 win over Crystal Palace. Their record on the road since last September has been poor, to say the least, as they've won only two of their last 21 matches on the road. Though one of those two victories did come at the beginning of October. Everton don't have any fresh injury worries for their evening game at Fulham, with Yeri Mina, Andros Townsend and Ben Godfrey all long-term absentees. Nathan Patson has a chance of making the squad, having recently returned to training. However, Lampard may resist the urge to use him from the outset. 
Dominic Calvert-Lewin marked his second league start of the season with a goal against Crystal Palace at the weekend, and his return to fitness is a timely boost. He scored twice when these two last met at Craven Cottage back in 2020, so a positive for Lampard there. However, I think Fulham will beat Everton 2-1. Bloody hell, Ben. 2-1 to Fulham as well. For, for me, I think Marcus <laughs> Silva will want to get one over his own club. Own club? Old club, sorry, Jonathan? 1-1. Uh, 1-1. One, one. One, one. But it's in the same things that I'm about to say, Ben. Ruining the game. Do you want to, do you want to give an update <laughs> on the league table? It's the horrific scenes that are the, the Who's Called Predictions table at the moment. Yeah, so after last week's disaster by Dan, he only got one point at the weekend. That was from Man City's 4-1 win over Brighton. Uh, sorry, 3-1 win. 3-1 win. Sorry. One point. <laughs> how how three, many points did I get? You predicted 4-1 and Man City won 3-1. Oh. So you got one point. Is that the only um, result I got right across the whole weekend? Yep. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> Work to do. Mm. Uh, who scored got seven points. We got the correct outcome from City, Brighton, and correct score for Chelsea, Man United, and West Ham Bournemouth. But Jonathan extended his lead at the top to 13 points as he got three correct scores and one correct result. And that leaves him 20 points ahead of Dan now. Been too outlandish. I've had some wild prediction list today. I felt a, a bit more steadier, although all my predictions were pretty much the same as yours, Ben. But yeah, I've been too wild with my predictions so far. Jonathan, any any thoughts from you before we go on on the predictions, league? Well, I got I got lucky last week to be honest, because I only got four four outcomes right. I mean, three but three of them happened to be correct results. So uh, you know, twenty points you can make it up in the blink of an eye. I'm, I'm counting no chickens. No, I'm not going to focus on you for now. I'm going to going to focus on on Ben whilst we're coming up to the winter pause. And I'm going to focus on trying to get <laughs> trying to get near who scored. Then we'll focus on you after the winter pause. Thank you ever so much for joining us today and watching the Who Scored podcast. Thanks to Ben and Jonathan for joining me. Don't forget to subscribe with your post notifications on so you know exactly when the next video is coming out. Enjoy all the football, whether you're going, whether you're watching, and as always, stay safe.